0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's Practice Groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of Practice Group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's webinar call. Today, April 26th, we discuss 10 years on, The America Invents Act in the role of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board in resolving patent disputes. My name is Guy DeSantis and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us our moderator, Honorable Bob Goodlatte, former Congressman United States House of Representatives. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Mr. Goodblatt, the floor is yours.
1: Thanks, Guy, and welcome to all. And a big thanks to the Federal Society for hosting this event on World IP Day. In 2000, the World Intellectual Property Organization's member nations designated April 26th, the day on which the WIPO convention came into force in 1970 as World IP Day with the aim of increasing general understanding of intellectual property. This year, the theme of World Intellectual Property Day is IP and youth innovating for a better future and celebrates youth-led innovation and creativity. Today's event is on the America Invents Act and the role of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, or PTAB, in resolving patent disputes. I'm Bob Goodlatte and I had the honor of representing Virginia's sixth congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1993 to 2019. During my time in Congress, I served as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee from 2013 until 2019. And prior to that, I served as the chairman of the subcommittee on intellectual property, competition, and the internet. I have prepared some brief remarks and after that, I'll introduce our panelists. When President Obama signed the America Invents Act into law on September 16, 2011, it was the first major overhaul of the US patent system since the 1952 Patents Act. At the time of passage, the AIA received overwhelming bipartisan support in both chambers. Recognizing the fundamental importance of high quality intellectual property to US innovation, and the competitiveness of the U.S. economy, the AIA focused on improving the quality of patents issued by the U.S. Patent and Trademarks Office while providing re-examination proceedings such as post-grant reviews, interparties review, and the covered business method patent program, all designed to provide an alternative to patent litigation. The Patent Trial and Appeal Board, which the AIA created, administers these re-examination proceedings. The debate over the role of the PTAB continues in Congress, the federal courts, and the USPTO. Proponents of the PTAB continue to argue that wrongly issued patents are the result of administrative error and that defendants in patent disputes should have an effective, efficient means uh, alternative to expensive patent litigation that diverts resources from innovation in order to determine whether the USPTO properly granted a patent. Opponents of the AIA and PTAB have argued that the AIA invests too much authority in administrative proceedings that cast a cloud of uncertainty over the intellectual property of patent holders, undermining value and limiting innovation. In the United States versus Arthrex in 2021, The Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the PTAB's Administrative Patent Judges or APJs by placing greater authority over PTAB decision with the USPTO director. In addition, a series of decisions in recent years, such as Inray Bilski, Mayo versus Prometheus, Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics and Alice Corporation versus CLS Bank International have raised fundamental questions about the subject matter eligibility of method patents and software, and by extension, whether the current scope of IPR is sufficient to resolve fundamental questions of patentability. This debate in the courts has resulted in the extraordinary exercise of discretionary authority by the USPTO director, ranging from the rewriting of examination guidelines intervention in PTAB proceedings to grant discretionary denial of petitions for review and the imposition of the so-called Fintiv rule to deny petitioners access to inter partes review. In response, a series of bills have been introduced in Congress aimed at resolving these issues and others. All of this is occurring against the backdrop of increasingly rapid technological innovation and an emerging consensus about the role of technology and innovation in enhancing US economic competitiveness vis-a-vis China and other global competitors. With the recent 10-year anniversary of the America Invents Act, a newly confirmed director at the USPTO, and Congress ramping up debate on reforms to the AIA, today's event is very timely. I look forward to our discussion about the role of the PTAB in resolving patent disputes and the legality of the exercise of significant discretionary authority by the USPTO director to implement policy outside the authority granted the director under the AIA. It's now my pleasure to introduce our distinguished panelists. Joseph Mittal is a partner in the intellectual property practice group in the Washington DC office of Haynes Boone LLP. Joe has served as both the USPTO's acting director and acting solicitor during the beginning of the Trump administration. As acting solicitor, he defended the agency in intellectual property cases before the US Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit and the US Supreme Court. Previously, Joe served as the general counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Jeff Sessions and as committee counsel to Senator John Kyle. In these roles, he participated in the negotiating and drafting of many of the key provisions of the America Invents Act. His practice focuses on USPTO post issuance proceedings and federal circuit appeals. Paul Taylor served over 20 years as counsel and chief counsel of the House Judiciary Committee's. Subcommittee on Constitution and Civil Justice. He also served as Senior Counsel at the House Oversight Committee. During that time, Mr. Taylor helped shepherd dozens of federal bills to signature into law by presidents of both political parties. He's the author of over a dozen law review articles on legal reform, constitutional law, religious liberty, and other topics, and a contributor to the Heritage Guide to the Constitution. Prior to working on Capitol Hill, Mr. Taylor worked as an associate at Kirkland & Ellis and Covington & Burling in Washington, DC. Mr. Taylor is a graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School. Welcome to you both. And I'll direct uh, our first question to Joe. Different industry groups and patent organizations have tried to claim that their views are the conservative position on patent policy. Some of these groups actually even include the word conservative, in their name, they argue that a true conservative supports the side of vigorous enforcement of patents in these debates. What do you see as the true conservative position on patent policy? It's an interesting question, Mr. Goodlatte, and uh, Fred, I'm going to have to give you
2: a longish uh, answer. Um, you know the. On Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats have divided on different bills and and responded to different economic interests and on different issues. But there's been this, for about 15 years now, there's been this consistent narrative that a true conservative, you know, especially a legal conservative sides in the patent with the patent owner on all these policy disputes. And the the argument is basically like this, that a patent is like a property, right? You know, we all agree that, uh, you know, Land is property, you know, that's sacrosanct and uh, patent is just another type of of property, except it's property and an idea. So if you're the first one to come up with an idea, you know, the patent protects your rights around that property. It's yours. And, you know, no one else has the right to it, um, you know, at least without uh, paying you a license. And so, you know. In the So, you know, the idea would be, you know, if you're on your land, for example, which you definitely own, and you come up with in the 19th century, a better combine or harvester or in the 20th century, a better engine or the 21st century, a better microchip, that's just as much your property as as your land. And no one else has the right to practice that without your, uh, you know, without your permission, at least if you're uh, practicing it, that's the idealized version of it. And so the argument is we need strong patents to protect that right just as much as we protect that right. In land. The difficulty comes is imagine a scenario where you know you're on your own land building, you know, engines in your factory and you thought you'd invented it, and someone comes along with a patent and says, you know, I have a patent on what you're doing. And at the very least, you need to pay me a license if you want to keep doing your business. I'm not contributing anything to your business, but you need to pay me for the privilege of you know continuing to build those engines, for example. Well, if they filed before you disclosed your engine to the world. Um, and the patent you know, otherwise meets the validity requirements, that's the way the patent system works. You know, it's a, infringement is a strict liability to, um, offense and uh, whoever files first before anyone publicly discloses has the right to a valid patent. But imagine another scenario where this person comes to you with a patent and by the time that patent was even filed, you'd already thought of the idea and been selling your product to the world or even more, you're not even the original inventor yourself. This idea was just in common usage. Everyone knew about it, you know, long before this patent was filed. Um, you know, then the, uh, the justice of the case is a little less clear, right? Uh, I mean, we all agree if the person really was the first inventor, the person who invented it to the world, then kind of justice and natural right is with that person. But if someone else got a patent improperly, and, you know, and they're just going after people who are practicing something that was already in the public domain, or even invented themselves. That doesn't seem fair, right? That that doesn't really accord with some one sense of natural right. And what that highlights is, in the patent system, the the key to the fair and efficient functioning of the system really comes down to validity, uh, accurate and thorough compliance with patent validity. If the patent's valid, and that person really was the uh, the, the person with the patent, really was the first inventor of the engine. Um, then that's their idea and they have that first right to it. And in fact, uh, rewarding that right encourages more innovation along those ideas. But if the person who got the patent wasn't really the inventor and the idea was already in the public domain, you're not aiding innovation. And frankly, you're just hurting people who who make real things. So validity is really critical to the um, fair functioning of the system. And here it's important we take a step back and look at the character of the actual litigation going on, not, not these... You know theoretical arguments about property rights, but what is going on? And historically, over the last several decades, when issued patents have been litigated, they've been found invalid about 40 to 45% of the time. These are studies that are not contested going back to the 90s, uh, finding that when courts themselves looked at these patents, they found a large portion of them were invalid. The patent office only has so much time to look at it some bad patents slip through. And that's why we've always had you know, cont- you know contests over validity when patents are later issued. Another aspect of the litigation we really need to think about is, patents aren't all just fights between different manufacturers. That guy suing you for making engines it isn't necessarily making engines or microchips himself. In fact, the bulk of the litigation in the United States over the last uh, at least 20 years has been brought by people who aren't practicing the invention. And the bulk of those people, those plaintiffs, Um, are what we call patent assertion entities, people that acquire patents on the secondary market. A lot of corporations build up patent portfolios, sometimes just for defensive reasons or, or, uh, you know, just for licensing fights. And then, you know, you have to pay to maintain your patents just to keep them and corporations will periodically unload them. And there's a fair amount of Patents that are available on the secondary market, and uh, you know the, a, a, a major portion of the litigation is just these people who bought the patent on the secondary market. So then, when you look at the issue of is the patent valid or not, it it really matters, you know, for purposes of the U.S. economy and just the fairness of this whole system. Whether the patent is valid, if someone just bought this patent for pennies on the dollar. Um, on the secondary market they're not even practicing the invention and the patent's invalid it's not only unfair to the person actually making things and employing people in the u.s you're not encouraging innovation all you're all you're encouraging is getting more patents and and uh and more lawyering and um you know so th- this is where i like to come back to the issue of strong patents the people who talk about strong patents you might think oh that means a patent that's valuable you know that really claims an innovation innovative idea but the way these some of these folks use this Term is they mean all patents should be made strong, whether they're valid or not. It should be harder to challenge them, and that's what a lot of this agenda has meant. You know, it, it's not really about protecting patents that are strong. It's about shielding patents that are invalid. And when we start to go down that path, when it turns into this kind of a lawyer's game, you know, I, I, what this makes me think of, and what a, you know, a true conservative is supposed to think is: Do any of you all remember a Senator John Reed Edwards of North Carolina? Um, he got involved in some scandals at the end of his career that kind of tarred him. but uh, you know he made his fortune before he got into politics doing medical malpractice litigation. He, and the bulk of his money came from suing obstetricians for um, uh, for failing to do a c-section early enough and, and therefore causing cerebral palsy, you know in the baby. And you know he l- earned huge awards. I mean, cerebral palsy is a debilitating. Uh, condition. And uh, if the doctor really was negligent and did something wrong and it injured this baby, obviously a, a jury wants to generously compensate um, uh, that baby and its family. The problem is at some point later in his career, it came out that uh, someone did a meta-analysis of all the medical studies and found that Whether or not you perform a C-section has virtually nothing to do with cerebral palsy. In fact, it's a genetic condition and the fetal heart monitoring monitoring readings that he used in his studies have nothing, no predictive power whatsoever over cerebral palsy. And in the end, this guy was just suing baby doctors who had done nothing wrong. He made healthcare more expensive, pressured doctors to do things, uh, to perform C-sections when they weren't necessary. John Edwards and that model should not be our model of how the litigation system works. he should not be the conservative legal hero. but that that's unfortunately when you allow invalid claims to be asserted and monetized, when you stack the system this way, when you let incorrect scientific evidence get into the jury process and bias these results this way, this is the kind of abuse you result that you end up with and
1: it, it shouldn't you know it shouldn't be any conservatives model of how the, uh, how the system works. Thank you. Paul, your professional experience has been primarily with constitutional law and civil justice reform. The U.S. Constitution makes clear that the purpose of the patent system was to secure exclusive patent rights for inventors, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts, end quote. Do your mind, is the civil justice system as it operates today fulfilling that constitutional purpose? Yeah, so...
3: I come from this uh, in terms of trying to understand the default position. If you don't have a functioning appeals board in the patent office that's there to clean up patents that were weak uh, or invalidate them, you're going to default to the litigation system. One thing I found in my research, I have a law review article coming out next winter. I hope to have it up on SSRN in a month or so once the editors get the first crack at it. But I um, found a lot of interesting evidence about how early jurists viewed a valid patent. And part of that um, interpretation of a valid patent, uh, integral to it was whether or not the patent was commercializable, um, whether or not someone was actually using it for the useful purpose that the constitution requires uh, for patenting. Um, John Marshall um, of Marbury versus Madison fame in 1832, uh, describing the patent statute at the time said, quote, the great object and intention of the act is to secure to the public to the public the advantages to be derived from the discoveries of individuals. Uh, this sort of uh, thinking was akin to the Lockean theory of property, where you had to mix your labor with the land before you really had a um, um, a true property right in it. Uh, in other words, um, in, improving its value and distributing its benefits to the public. The famous barbed wire case that the Supreme Court handed down in uh, 1892, Um, It was between the the Kelly and the Glidden versions of the barbed wire. The Glidden version uh, had uh, sharper barbs. But in uh, upholding the Glidden patent, um, the Supreme Court pointed to how um, much more commercially successful the Glidden patent was and how many more tons of barbed wire it had sold and looking to the validity, upholding the validity of that patent. And if you fast forward to the modern day when Congress was creating the International Trade Commission... The statute read that you could only take advantage of the ITC if um, you could show that you were part of a domestic industry that was, quote, efficiently and e- economically operated, and that the infringing goods would destroy or substantially in, in, uh, injure an in industry. So they were looking to protect people that were having uh, had commercially viable uh, products, and uh, so. Now, when you look at the litigation system, I'm using as my paradigm here in terms of describing its dysfunctions as a patent that is overly broad, weak, um, and uh, but still granted. Now we know that the general distinction of the American legal system is we don't have a loser pays law. So what that means is um, anyone by threat of default judgment can file a complaint against somebody, impose a lot of defense costs on them, and then try to extort a settlement out of them that is somewhat less than what the person sued would have to pay to litigate uh, the case uh, to victory on their side. So if it would cost you $10,000 to defend yourself successfully in court, someone could say, just pay me $8,000 now and I'll go away. So that's the uh, sort of um, extortionist effect that is at play as the baseline of our litigation system. And uh, piggybacking on that, are third-party litigation financers, which we see now. These are uh, folks who come in and agree to pay for the litigation, but in return, they can put certain uh, restrictions on what the lawyer for the client or for the patent donor can do or not do in court. In fact, um, when I was working for the Judiciary Committee, Mr. Goodlatte, you yourself spearheaded a class action reform bill, which would at least require the bare bones of transparency in terms of third-party uh, litigation financing contracts at least make them known to the litigants and to the court. In fact, there were some uh, really egregious examples of contracts that um, tied the hands of the lawyers themselves who were supposedly uh, representing uh, their clients um, to the best of their ability. Uh, these were uh, conditions that the contracts put on in terms of the experts that could be put up, um, at the fees that would be uh, distributed. Uh, fees that um, would actually detract from the recovery of the plaintiffs themselves. These were all things that various judges found kind of shocking when when they came out. And then the judges required the disclosure of these terms, because when you have a contract like that from a funder that ties the hand of the lawyer, um, you're really separating Uh, the representation in the case from the judicial system. Because as an officer of the court, you're supposed to be in return for the privilege of attorney, client, et cetera, you're supposed to be tied at the hip to your client and not subject to external constraints based on the funding that are handed down by third party litigation financiers. So when you combine a patent that's overly broad and not commercializable, which separates that patent from uh, industry and the economy, With third-party litigation financing, which separates the lawyer from the judicial system as properly understood as an officer of the court, you end up with some severe dysfunctions. Actually, just about a week ago, um, there was a judge in Delaware District Court who uh, actually issued a standing order that requires all litigants to um, disclose any third-party litigation financing contracts they're subject to. Uh, This is a judge actually who I understand Handles about four percent of all patent cases, so I think what he's done um, is going to be very influential. Probably spread to the other uh, judges in the in Delaware uh, and probably elsewhere. So when you have a, a, an overly broad patent granted uh, minted, I should say by the um, by the Patent and Trademark Office, uh, and there's. By no the way, Paul, to
2: just yeah. to clarify, you mean he handles four percent of all cases in the U.S. right? Not just in 4% the U.S. in the U.S. Yeah. Yes, correct. Yeah, Delaware plays an outsized role in adjudicating patents cases. Right.
3: So, when you have a situation where there's a patent that is overly broad but has been granted, um, and it's not commercializable, and it can be subject to a third-party finance litigation, in my mind, you kind of end up with a magic um, casino chip. That patent can be plunked down on a table in the patent litigation casino, and it can force others to come to the table. And uh, there are just dis- there are vast disproportional. Forces at work in that litigation. For example, there's a presumption of validity on that patent, the chip. That means that for that person who has the chip to win the case, their patent infringement case, they only need to meet a preponderance of the evidence standard. Whereas their opponent, who is forced to come to the table, can only win the, their case claiming that that chip is an invalid patent by clear and convincing evidence. And in very confusing cases uh, where juries are having to deal with the subject of quantum computing technology and the like, juries can get very confused about the technology and the dynamic that I see happening is that a confused jury, if they're, if they're talking about a complex system, they're trying to figure all this stuff out, who invented what, when, what, what designs were already obvious or not obvious, they're gonna be struggling to come to any determination at all. But if any determination on their part is a stretch, it's gonna be a shorter stretch to reach up to the um, preponderance of the evidence bar than it is higher to the clear and convincing evidence bar. So you're gonna find confused juries just tapping out at the preponderance of the evidence bar and calling it a day. You add to that the disproportionate discovery costs. If you're making a commercially viable product and you're sued for patent infringement, you've got a lot of stuff in your files about the sale and development of that product. Whereas someone who sues you for infringement, who doesn't have any commercialized product to show, they're not going to have anything in their files that they'll have to produce. And so, there's a disproportionate number of chips that are forced to be put on that casino table. Um, there are lots of other um, uh, imbalances uh, that come into play uh, in the damages arena, but I won't uh, I won't belabor those too much. But welcome back. Things-
1: We'll come back to you. I've got another question for Joe. Sure.
2: And hey, Mr. Midland, I see we have a question from the audience. Uh, should we, you want to ask that one? And maybe Paul and I
1: can weigh in on it. It seems to kind of
2: lead nicely from the issues we've raised.
1: So we have a question. Uh, uh, says, should judges hearing patent and other scientific and technical cases be required to be scientifically educated? I think you can both uh, take a shot at that. Why don't you start, Joe? Sure. So, uh, You know, I was
2: thinking about that, and then I realized it doesn't matter because it's a jury trial right in the U.S. system. You know, the jury trial right attaches to litigation of of patent infringement cases. And so whether the judge is scientifically educated or not, it's the jury that's going to be making all the determinations. And if you leave the determination of validity, you know, patent validity of what was obvious to a person of skill in the art at a various point in time, you're just not going to get accurate results. And I you know, I have great respect for the jury system. It definitely has its purpose in our system. First of all, it's an excellent check on the power of the government. It prevents government overreach, um, prevents the government from going after political opponents and things like that, or just prosecuting improper cases. And then jury, you know, there are certain factual determinations juries are good at. They're good at telling when someone's lying or when someone's dissembling, you know, who's coming forward with the truth. But One thing that you know, they're just not as good at deciding scientific and technical questions. This is hot why um generally in the federal system, we have Rule 702, the rules about submission of scientific evidence. The rules have just evolved to recognize that an expert up there in a white lab coat saying, My, you know, I have my PhD and I think you know X caused Y, and this person is is liable. That's going to be highly persuasive to a jury. And when there are competing experts, you know, they're not, they're, they're not going to get as much into, you know, whose scientific theory is is correct in light of the latest study or article. They're going to be influenced by other factors. This is frankly how John Edwards made his living. There's no Rule 702 in the North Carolina state courts. He wasn't bringing these med mal cases in federal court. There you'd have Rule 702, and a, a doctor would have been able to say, look, there's no scientifically reliable evidence that Anything I did could have caused cerebral palsy, but if that didn't exist in state court. The guy with the light white lab coat, and you can find these people, got up there and testified this guy caused this, and the jury's sympathy is with the baby. And a similar dynamic will apply in patents cases. A lot of these cases, although there's a nominal validity, uh, invalidity defense uh, mounted, a lot of them degenerate into portraying the parties and who's the little guy and who's the big guy. And the patent owners often try to, you know, they want to portray themselves as the little guy up against some nasty corporation. And that, that sells well, you know, it sells well with juries. And one of the phenomena you see these days is you think, well, why would a jury sympathize though with a pure patent assertion entity, someone that's litigation funded is really just a hedge fund. But these a lot of these plaintiffs have been successful at persuading judges to exclude that evidence from the jury. They say it's not relevant who I am. And so this patent assertion entity that, again, is, you know, funded by, you know, a pretty large uh, litigation hedge fund will just present itself as Texas Tech, a scrappy little startup, and uh, the whole fight turns on whether the defendant can get into the case the, the evidence of who this entity really is and who's really suing them. And uh, I'll just submit th- this is a ridiculous way of adjudicating intellectual property rights. No other country in the world does it this way. Any assessment of uh, assessment of a patent's validity should be done by someone with a background degree of skill in the art, someone who's already familiar with the subject matter and already is familiar with the terminology and and the technology, you're going to get a much more accurate assessment of whether a claimed invention was obvious at a particular time or not um, from a person who already has that
1: background level of knowledge. So, Paul, this was a question that I had uh, uh, prepared for you. And uh, our viewer has uh, Uh, teed it up already. So anything you want to say uh, in addition to what Joe's just observed about uh, the role of jurors in our patent litigation system?
3: Yeah, no, there's an interesting uh, quote I found from a Judge Grier back in uh, 1852. Patent litigation abuse is going back a long time, and there was a big uh, spree of uh, farm patent um, litigation. And in one case, He made uh, clear in his opinion itself that the case involved, quote, the application of principles of science and the law to admitted facts and by a jury, quote, in which 10 out of 12 jurors do not understand the principles of science or mathematics. So we are stuck with the jury system, but we're not stuck with a system in which overly broad and invalid patents can continue to float around in the system without some correction in the patent office itself. Um, And um, I was struck by a quote by James Madison uh, in the Federalist Papers. And central to his understanding of the very concept of the rule of law was the idea that uh, the government not be administering the law in a willy-nilly fashion. In other words, uh, too sloppily. And the the quote from Federalist Paper Number uh, 62 is, quote, law is defined to be a rule of action, but how can that be a rule which is little known and less fixed. What prudent merchant will hazard his fortunes in any new branch of commerce when he knows not, but that his plans may be rendered unlawful before they can be executed? Perfect analogy with overly broad patents where um, people subsequently come around, innocently invent uh, something, commercialize it, it's very popular, and then out of the blue comes someone asserting um, a vague patent improperly granted um, to uh, gum up the works of the, of the productive companies trying to spread the innovation. In fact, researchers have done studies of uh, medical uh, imaging companies where that were sued for patent infringement. And it turned out that while they were being sued, they didn't produce any new uh, medical imaging. Uh, they didn't want to um, get themselves into any more hot water. And in the meantime, you know, medical imaging is a pretty important technology and I uh, wish we had more of it rather than less.
1: So Joe, this leads us right back around to uh, the America Invents Act and uh, the intention to, uh, before we get to very expensive litigation where very technical issues are going to have to be decided by people, judges and jurors that uh, may not uh, have the background for it uh, and puts it back into the USPTO. So there's been a lot of debate recent years about the role of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board in reviewing issued patents board is staffed with administrative judges with technical educations and experience and has been tasked with reviewing the validity of issued patents. Do you think that the PTAB is functioning as intended? And what lessons do the experience with PTAB proceedings have for administrative law?
2: Well, we now have, uh, you know, I think there's two answers to that. One is just the core function that was assigned to the board of assessing validity. Are they doing that right? You know, are, are, are they doing that well? And, uh, you know, there, I think the answer is, is clearly yes. Um, you know, when the board judges review a case, you get three judges with relevant technical backgrounds deciding and they issue a detailed decision, by the way. In these cases where a patents validity is challenged uh, at the uh, at the agency board, um, you tend to get like a, you know, I'd say probably the mean decision is about 60 pages long. And among other things, that means it's judicially reviewable. When you get a decision back from a jury, First of all, validity is just one of several issues thrown at them. Juries have a tendency to decide all issues for one side or another. And then on the issue of validity, all you get back is a bunch of check boxes. Did you find this patent uh, invalid, invalid or, or valid? And they just check, you know, no, 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 did not meet their burden of proving invalidity. You know, good luck even testing that um, on appeal. Um, and the other thing is, we, you know, we know the decisions are more of the board are more accurate because, frankly, the federal circuit has, has said so. Um, in 2019, an academic did a, um, a study of all of the patent validity decisions that had been made by district judges and by um, and uh, by the PTAB in the years 2015-16 and just tracked what went up on appeal. And, you know, lo and behold, the, um, you know, the, the results of the study were that the board, I think the exact words, where the board is affirmed notably more often uh, than district judges when these cases go on appeal. And the study concluded obviously having a technical background you know, helps when you're uh, reviewing these issues. And to get back to Paul's uh, discussion of early 19th century history, I'm going to out 19th century, Paul, and say, look, obviously, having a technical background helps. In fact, this has been the premise of patent examination since 1836. Um, Under the seven, you know, the very early Patent Act had the Thomas Jefferson and the uh, Attorney General and the Secretary of State reviewing all the patents. That was too much work. They repealed that in the 1793 Act and the US went through this almost 40 year period when the patent system was just a registration system, you didn't, you know, you didn't examine it. And, you know, it led to problems that would be familiar (laughs) to people today. You had a lot of invalid patents, you know, being enforced against people that, you know, never should have issued. And in 1836, the U.S. finally decided, we're gonna have the patents examined and we're gonna have people with a relevant technical background looking at the different technologies so it's been the premise of our system for you know, over 180 years now that yes having an education in the relevant technology you know is an aid to um, you know is an aid to an accurate assessment of patent validity that you're really judging someone who's skilled in this art what would they have seen as obvious at the time and what better person to judge what's you know a person in the skill of the art would have thought than Someone who actually has skill in that art, you know, I, 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 frankly, there's there's no reasonable argument that having the relevant technical background isn't an aid in making judgments and assessing patent validity. And uh, so you, you asked a broader question, though, about the second part of this question is, well, has the functioning been the way things should be? When the board's allowed to do its job, it's done what Congress expected. There have been problems with having the board and administrative agents in an administrative agency and I, frankly I can't really tell you how to fix these if you put these cases in court I think the, you know there's a good chance the jury trial right would uh, attach so if you really want an expert looking at these cases you have to put it in an agency the problem is there's been a fair amount of manipulation of the system in the agency and uh, you know we've had you know we've had uh, rules adopted that basically restrict access to these proceedings. There's been this argument that well if a jury you know if a jury trial might reach the case more quickly you know we should defer to that because it'd be faster. And I'll uh, well, never mind that going through a trial is much more expensive. Um, also, the whole premise of all these proceedings has always been that having technical experts. Produces a more accurate result. And, you know, when you're getting these multi hundred million billion dollar judgments against critical technologies in the US, I think there's a premium on, you know, patent validity. But we've seen the agency adopt rules that say it has discretion not to decide a case on the merits and that it can defer to district courts, et cetera. And that's just part of being, you know, in an administrative agency. You have that kind of power over the board. Um, frankly, if we had it to do over again, I, I think it would have been a good idea to. At least make the PTAB judges something like Article One judges, you know, like the claim court, claims court, where they have a 15-year term and a little more independence and are appointed by the uh, the president. But this idea of you know the agency just picking and choosing whenever people can get validity review, it just
1: it's just no way to run a modern um,
2: you know modern industrial economy.
1: And what's your thought on how the courts have uh, overseen that? jockeying that's been going on uh, in the <clears throat> PTO with some of the uh, last directors' uh, decisions. So the 20th century saw enormous growth in the administrative state and a vast accumulation of power by administrative agencies such as the power to interpret the law. How has this played out in the patent system? And in particular, what has the patent office's experience been with doctrines such as Chevron deference? and? For some, you may want to explain the Chevron deference doctrine from the Supreme Court.
2: I'll give a bit of background. Although I suspect many people from in the involved in the Federal Society know all about Chevron and have strong views on it, and uh, I think a lot of them will be pleased to know that Chevron is basically doesn't exist in the patent space. So Chevron is this doctrine that um, goes back to the early '80s. That you know, when an agency you know construes a statute, as long as it's term interpretation of a statute is reasonable, the Article 3 judiciary should defer to the agency's interpretation uh, of the statute. And this has been you know, textbook law for you know quite a while now, although a number of justices have started to express reservations, especially among the conservatives. One of the strange features of Chevron is, well, agency heads change you know quite a bit more often than courts do. If a new agency head appointed by a new president has a different interpretation of the law, do we, have to inter, do we have to defer to that too? And uh, the answer is yes. Um, there have been cases, uh, the you know, infamous cases involving, um, you know, the status of uh, broadband at the FCC where the agency has gone back, I think, four or five times now as to, you know, whether it's under Title II and regulated as a public utility or, or, or not. And it just, I think it strikes a lot of conservatives as strange that the meaning of the law, and. know, affirmatively enacted statute depends on the opinion of some political appointee. In the patent space, this hasn't happened, and that's largely been the uh, result of the federal circuit. The federal circuit really doesn't give the agency any meaningful um, Chevron deference, and this is you know strange for a number of reasons. First of all, the, the I think a majority of the court is still uh, Obama appointees, or at least half of it, and um, you know, mostly Democratic appointees. And the other thing is, the Federal Circuit actually does give Chevron deference to other agencies under its purview. I think the the court, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, has just recognized that it's uniquely inappropriate to give Chevron deference in the patent space. Because you are dealing with a property right that's ex- expected to last for years, and uh, a, a recent experience we've had with this is, um, you know, the agency recently tried to issue its own guidance on Section One Hundred One of the Patent Act. Section One Hundred One is this core section that defines what kind of subject matter uh, is patentable. You know, what what kind of area can you get a patent in, and it limits patenting to machines you know, manufacturer's process or composition of matter, you know, overall this kind of industrial technical uh, area. And uh, there's been back and forth and uh, the um, end of the 20th century, the courts in charge of patents cases decided, you know, there are more things ought to be patentable and we shouldn't be so uptight about all this stuff. And, uh, um, you know, if a little patenting is good, then uh, even more is better. And if that's good for me as a lawyer, you know, and and my friends, then, you know, even better. This kind of bottomed out when in 19, Ninety-eight, the court ruled literally that you can get a patent for a business method. If you come up with a better idea of selling something or some entrepreneurial idea that's just as patentable as a new vaccine or a, or a better microchip, this led to eventually a backlash at the, A lot of improper patents were issued, some of which were facially ridiculous. Eventually, this led to a backlash at the U.S. Supreme Court, which, in a five-year period in the early part of the last decade issued four decisions, you know, curtailing patent eligible subject matter. And those four decisions are kind of our lodestar now guiding this area. Well, a lot of patent lawyers didn't like this and there's been all this, you know, complaining about it and, uh, etc. I, I think those decisions are mostly correct, you know, at least business methods and other sociological things shouldn't be eligible. But, um, recently the agency tried this experiment of, well, if we don't like the way the jurisprudence has gone in the court, let's issue agency guidance. And, uh, see how that goes. Maybe we'll get Chevron deference, right? Like all these other agencies uh, have. And uh, let's just say it's gone over with the federal circuit like a lead balloon. Pretty much any time you get in a fight with a court about who's in charge of something, and especially the law, you know, you're going to lose. And the federal circuit in particular is recognized, look, you, you know, the the definition of what's even patentable subject matter cannot change every time we have a new patent director. Say the federal circuit had deferred to the most recent guidance, which you know, pretty clearly expands what's eligible for a patent. Great, we issue several hundred thousand patents a year these days. We, you know, if the court adopted this guidance and we operated under that for several years, then we'd issue all these patents that wouldn't have issued before, right? Well, what happens when we get another director who takes a narrower view of what should be patent eligible and that director issues his or her own guidance under the Chevron doctrine? That guidance would become the law, you know. And Chevron is. I call it a rule of judicial transubstantiation. You know, it may just seem like an agency's opinion, but it becomes the body and blood of the law. Well, what would happen to all those patents issued previously? Are they invalid? You know, the new guidance would be the law under Chevron. Um, you know, or are you going to say, well, it's whatever guidance was issued at the time. And, uh, you know, then you get into issues of, well, what, is the, what if it's a continuation <laughs> patent? And look, there has to be just it's hard enough to administer and try to rationally interpret one body of law for what type of subject matter is eligible for a patent. The idea that the patent, the law could shift back and forth and things suddenly become ineligible that were eligible before and vice versa, you know it, it should give you a headache the more you think about it. And uh, in, a, in a way, the patent system is kind of a textbook example of why the Chevron doctrine doesn't really makes sense, you know. The, um, the old Supreme Court uh, decision by Justice Marshall didn't say it's emphatically the duty and province of the administrative agencies to say what the law is. It's so the job of the courts, you know. It's pretty clearly defined in our Constitution and when something's a statute and it's a question of statutory interpretation, it's the courts that need to say what the law is and have that be binding for, you know, until Congress changes it or until the courts change their mind. It shouldn't change every time you get a different head you know, of an agency.
1: So that's- Okay, so oh. let, me, let me interrupt because we're getting uh, uh, some more questions from some of our attendees. Uh, and so I'll, I'll throw this one into the mix. Is a basic hallmark of fairness that the judge and the body that employs the judge not have a financial interest in finding for a particular party? Should we be concerned that the USPTO has a financial interest in encouraging the filing of IPRs and instituting them to the tune of $40,000 per case? Should we be concerned that APJs are reported to get higher bonuses for invalidating patents, issuing more decisions? I can't, uh, I think there's maybe more, but I can't read it. So either
2: one of you want to take that one? You know, I'll take this one. This has been a you know a recent line of legal attacks against the patent trial and appeal board. A lot of the patent bar. Look, if you spent years obtaining a patent and then you get it, and then you're hoping to make money off it, and you're litigating it, and someone goes to the patent trial and appeal board and gets a judgment that it was invalid, it never should have issued you're gonna be unhappy, right? And you don't really care whether the board was right, you're just unhappy that that happened. And, uh, you know, you get a lot of people who make a lot of attacks on the board. Uh, you know, the patent bar in particular has been unhappy for being called out on patents they obtained that they really shouldn't have. As to the two questions asked, the first one is to the legal principles, like, yeah, that's right, you, you know, you, you, a, a decision maker, an adjudicative decision maker can't be biased. There's a series of Supreme Court decisions, all oddly enough, involving the state of Ohio that held that, look, the judge can't have a pecuniary interest, like his salary can't come out of of, of how he rules in a case, it can't affect him, you know, directly, um, or if he has kind of, you know, don't need to get into the legal standard. This issue, though, some patent owners tried to bring this attack against the board, saying the board is biased, and the federal circuit unanimously rejected this argument. Um, the board's budget is actually set by Congress, and uh, that alone settles the issue. When a, whether a PTAB judge institutes or doesn't institute a case has no impact on that judge's uh, th- that judge's income, and there's no competent evidence to the contrary. All the evidence is that there's plenty of work for the judges to do. You can get a bonus for doing more work. They do. Inc- they sometimes when they're busy. They offer bonuses to get the judges to work overtime, but there's all, when they do that, there's plenty of work to do. And if you decline a case, you just get assigned another one. Instituting a proceeding, you know, instituting a challenge does not affect how much of a bonus or you're going to get or, or what your salary is. Um, the, you know, the, the legal standard is correct. It, it just the board has you know clearly complies with the due process uh, standard. Um, they're getting the case right on the facts, as the results on the appeal show.
1: Okay, so we've gone through more than three quarters of our time. Let me uh, switch gears here and uh, ask both of you uh, about the fact that we now have a brand new uh, USPTO director, Kathy Vidal. Uh, What uh, priorities do you think that our new director should have?
2: Well, I've been doing a lot of talking, so uh, do you want to address this one first, or?
3: Yeah, I mean, just from a relative outsider perspective to the patent world. In reading a lot of history books of different industries through American history, the the issue of getting these patents right from the get-go is so crucially important. If you read any book from a historian on the history of the railroad industry, there's always a chapter on the patent wars. And it it, is an interesting discussion of how uh, engineers from the Pennsylvania Railroad, in the 1870s thought they could come up with a better ventilation system to get smoke out of the train. But they went to the patent office and they saw, quote, a jumble of patents, overly broad covering huge swaths of technology. And they decided, you know what, we're not gonna risk um, a patent lawsuit by even trying to improve the ventilation system in this case. Uh, You had, with Henry Ford and the Model T, there was a a guy, I think his name is uh, Kittle. who had patented something akin to a lightweight internal combustion engine, and Henry Ford had to pay royalties to him uh, forever and uh, and always hated it that there was um, this patent out there that he had to pay royalties to for an overly broad patent. So that, I mean, I think that is the, that's the central problem with all of this is the initial issuance of these overly broad patents. And that, I mean, to my mind, which should be the top priority, patent examiners taking more time, being more careful, um, and uh, surveying the technical universe in advance so juries don't have to. You
2: know, i, I just add that, uh, you know, in some ways, like being a director, being the director, in some ways isn't that hard because so much of this is dictated by the law, you know. And you know, you you actually don't have discretion to make up, you know, your own patent eligibility jurisprudence, for example. So trying to digest and refine that jurisprudence and intelligible exa- guidance for examiners is work enough of its own, you know. And just running the office and uh, ensuring the highest quality patents are are issued, but because of the lack Lack of Chevron deference and broad policymaking authority. Uh, if you just follow the law and do what you're, you know, the law. A lot of the law has been around for, you know, two centuries. By the way, it's pretty, pretty well set. You know, you can't fault the director for just doing that and issuing the, you know, the highest quality patents that you can.
1: So, what, what should the new director do regarding the decision made by the previous director that uh, uh, created uh, much more discretion? Uh, in terms of uh, when uh, the PTO takes cases through the PTAB and when do they give deference to the courts?
2: I think there are two things you have to ask, first of all, is the way I'm exercising discretion consistent with the statute. Agencies are pure creatures of statute. They have no power that is not granted to them by statute and whatever discretion with the discretion you have is always bounded by law. Uh, the, the rule I, uh, the, you know, the recent policy i view used most problematic is this one that you defer to a district court if they're going to reach, you know, things more quickly. Like, first of all, the whole purpose of these office proceedings was to get an expert analysis, especially in complex cases. And secondly, the statute already sets a deadline. The, the, the statute itself says you can file a case up to one year within when you're sued you know that when the statute sets a deadline in relation to district court proceedings the agency doesn't have the discretion to change that you're obligated to follow that legislative choice uh, that was made um you know with regard to other issues like 101 like look the federal circuits made pretty clear it's not going to give any kind of deference. You you just need to, we can grumble about the case law, argue for changing it in court of appeals or US Supreme Court cases, but you have to follow what an article three court says is the proper interpretation uh, of the the patent act. And secondarily, with regard to the issue of discretion, I just add to the extent that an issue is within your discretion, you know, you have to ask what's good policy for the United States and the patent system's always been a balance. You wanna encourage innovation, rewards for innovation, while ensuring that people can still use things that are in the public domain, that what you're rewarding actually is, you know, novel and non-obvious innovation and not just, you know, the the patent system isn't meant to reward lawyers or just the act of obtaining a patent. And when you do do that, you kind of increase the incentive and pressure to get patents that shouldn't have issued and to assert them. You know, we really balance the system by vigorously enforcing all of those conditions of patentability you know, at all stages in the process. And a director who does that um, is one that is is focused on that and remembers that purpose um, is one that's doing a
1: good job. So patent trolls frequently use and abuse the patent continuation process to obtain multiple patents over a period of many years, which effectively extends the term of exclusivity available to patent holders. This evergreening effect allows patent trolls to prosecute patents to issue and also keep a continuation application on file to seek additional and often broader claims from the same patent application. As a result, patent trolls are free to assert and issue patents while making changes to pending applications to address validity challenges and non-infringement defenses raised against issued patents. The continuation process also allows patent trolls to change their target over time by drafting patent claims that read on future products or delay the issuance of patents to target a mature industry. Obviously, that's a problem. How do you fix it?
2: Well, um, you know, the, look, there are bad litigants out there who will assert patents just just for a nuisance settlement. Unfortunately, that's just part of the system. Um, there are, you know, people who assert patents who don't have a legitimate uh, interest in them and are indifferent to uh, invalidity. Some of the things you mentioned, like extension of Patent term. There are rules, you know, um, that limit your ability to extend your patent term by obtaining multiple patents. Especially since we've shifted to the twenty-year patent term, it's been much easier to enforce that. I, I think if we get into a discussion of obviousness-type double patenting, though, the Federal Society will never invite invite us back for uh, for a seminar. Um, you know, the other, you know, the U.S. also does have a very liberal system of seeking continuation applications, where you can get more patents off the same specification. Sometimes that's legitimate. Um, You know, sometimes, uh, you know, you you want people to be able to refine their claims as they do further tests, for example, of a drug on patients, they uh, come to appreciate new efficacies. And, you know, if that was part of their original disclosure, they want to be able to claim it. Sometimes that's, you know, abused uh, as as well. Um, That's actually an issue, an area where the office does have some discretion as to um you know what kind of rules to set up governing governing continuation patents and things like that it's a contentious issue within the patent community but one where there uh, where there clearly is a bit of a discretion and um again the issue of uh I'm not going to use the T word but uh you know abusive litigants um you know this is something we all that always needs to be kept in mind when you hear these narratives about you know the independent inventor and uh, you know how you know and protecting that property right is like protecting your land keep in mind there are a lot of people out there asserting patents who bought them on the secondary market a lot of them are backed by hedge funds a lot of those hedge funds rely heavily on foreign investors if we're letting these people assert monetize invalid patents Against American manufacturers, against makers of core technologies like microchips and routers and networking equipment, we're not advancing the economic interests of the United States. At the very least, that patent has to be invalid. It has to be valid before you're plausibly advancing innovation in some way. Um, We're just letting people take advantage of the system. And a lot of those people aren't even. You know, they're not even Americans. Um, some of these big hedge funds that invest in patent litigation, they're foreign owned. They get money from foreign investors. There's suspicion that a lot of them get quite a few Middle Eastern investors who are looking for a place to park their money. Yeah, the, You know, the, I, it's hard to think of anything that'd be more damaging to American economic interest than to allow people like that to leverage invalid patents against American companies making core technologies that are critical to the rest of our economy and even to our, our national security. you know, Given that that's the character of so much of this litigation, we really want that accurate and authoritative uh, assessment of patent validity.
1: So we're down to four minutes. So I'll give each of you two minutes to touch on the myriad of topics we haven't uh, had the opportunity to cover or to enhance something that you've already spoken about, and I'll start with Paul.
3: I mean, uh, just off the top of my head, in order to get a, at least from my relatively outsider perspective, I found it very valuable to do things like just search through patents, see how complicated they are, and see, envision in my mind how well a jury could adequately um, cope with these scientific issues. And if you just search random patents, you'll immediately realize that it's much better that people with technical backgrounds on the front end get the patent uh, decision right um, before anything goes to a jury. Also, jury instructions are very uh, educational. Uh, If you just look at the issue of obviousness, uh, as typical jury instruction is gonna introduce jurors to the concepts of prior art, printed publications, prosecution history, the date of an invention, a person of ordinary skill in the art, the obviousness obviousness standard, improper hindsight, motivation to combine prior art teachings, long felt need. I can go on, and there, there are even more concepts in there. And these are for trials that only go on about two weeks. And to educate a jury about all angles of all of those issues in a fair way, even the issue of damages is going to involve uh, questions of whether or not multiple alternative products could have been used to accomplish the same goal as would have been accomplished by by using the patent that's allegedly infringing. So, I mean, uh, my, my only point is that it's really interesting to look at jury instructions, patents themselves, and reading the history of American industry to really get a sense of why. Ultimately, we have to make sure you get the patent decision correct on the front end of the Patent and Trademark Office.
1: Thank you. Joe, you get the last word. Thanks. You know,
2: I just, uh, since there's only little time, I just want to thank the Federalists for inviting us and having this debate. I feel like a lot of the debate on patent policy has been a bit distorted. People are trying to claim this label or that. And those of you watching this who don't already have, aren't already in your camp on patent policy and are trying to decide what to think, my advice is you just have to think for or for yourself on these issues patent policy is one of those things that to benefit america we just want to get it right i i tell people it's like antitrust law there's no true conservative position on antitrust law you don't want excessive antitrust litigation but Conservatives don't support monopolies either or, you know, agreements and restraint of trade. You know, a, a legal conservative should support enforcement of the law as it's written. Someone who's invented something novel and non-obvious, and that meets the other conditions of patentability. That's their invention and they're entitled to uh, enforce that patent. But if you don't meet those conditions, you're not really benefiting the economy. You're not benefiting, um, you know, the, uh, you know the, you're not pursuing the legitimate ends of the system. And that patent should be invalidated if it doesn't meet those uh, those conditions. Accurate and uh, and objective enforcement of the law is, is critical to the fair and efficient functioning of the patent system. Thank you. Uh,
1: and I want to thank uh, the Federal Society again uh, for having this. I hope you continue this discussion with some future events as well. And uh, I'll turn it back to Guy. Thank you all.
0: On behalf of the Federalist Society, I wanna thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I wanna thank our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at infofed sockorg As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for join- joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.